Two liars leave. Where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody wins. Tonight's theme is weird and wonderful. The League is, of course, no stranger to weird. In our time, we've had unicorns on blind dates, heads spontaneously exploding, a man picking a fight with a hippo. We've had a man with a musical penis. We've had a coked up Father Christmas, a watch nourished by beer, and a lavender bunny, three ways. In fact, we've had so many weird lies. There's even an award-winning book out, published by Arachne Press, which is stuffed full of them. So tonight, expect the unexpected. Expect stories that make you seriously concerned for the mental state of the author. And of course, expect them all to be quite simply wonderful. We'll have three slices of strange for you in the first half, then an interval where you can attempt to restore the tattered shreds of your sanity, a brief respite before we plunge back in with the infamous Lies League book quiz. <laughs> and then two final fantastic, fantastical fables. Before, however, we warp your reality, please turn your phones to silent or off. Because there's nothing more depressingly normal than the urgent interruptions of a mobile electronic device. Our first story of the evening will be Hard Times by Bruce Brandt, and we read by Susan Moisley. Ruth is at Kingston University studying an MFA in creative writing. Her short stories have appealed, appeared in Take Tea with Turing Anthology, Bristol Short Story Prize Anthology Volume 4, Litra, Candice, Yours and Ireland's Own. She lives in Surrey, has two delightful sons, and is working on a historical novel. Susan trained at Drama Studio London and has appeared in a variety of roles, including Elizabeth I, an elderly hypochondriac, and a Russian prostitute. She has been involved most recently in a series of stage productions, raising money for armed forces charities, helping soldiers and veterans suffering mental trauma. Susan. Hard Times by Ruth Brandt. The day Sophia found the last chair in her flat was down to three legs was the day she decided things had to change. She had nothing to sit on, no job, an ex-dog and an ex-boyfriend. The dog had gone. The ex-boyfriend had stayed. Go, she had instructed months earlier. No. He had replied, staying exactly where he was. The dog, well, she missed the dog. Fido, he'd been called. A St Bernard who had arrived with the ex and with an appetite for four cans of dog food and half a box of biscuits a day. At night, as the lovers had snuggled down, starlight twinkling magic over their duvet, Fido poured his way up the bed to lie between them. 
Laughing, the pair would disentwine to hold hands across the dog's back as they fell asleep contentedly to the animal's purring snores. And so life for the three of them had passed in blissful harmony for many months, until the day when Sophia had, as usual, tied Fido to the street sign outside Harry and Kareem's, patted him on the head and entered the super convenient corner store. That was the last she'd seen of Fido. For when she emerged with her yoghurt five minutes later, the dog had disappeared. Crying bitterly over her soured milk, Sophia had run home to be consoled by her boyfriend. The anticipated loving embrace had proved, however, to be as absent as the dog. Her boyfriend said she hadn't taken due care of his dog. He said she hadn't tied him up properly. She said, of course she had. She always ties the dog up properly. What was he accusing her of? Not tying him up properly or something? Yes, exactly that, he had replied. And in a blink, their relationship was over. While the absence of the dog and the continued presence of the ex-boyfriend dispatched Sophia to a world of quiet anguish, the ex's grief, had taken an entirely different form. He sat on her sofa, day in, day out, and with a penknife an uncle had given him years earlier, he began to carve small people out of four-inch sections of wood which he sawed from the legs of her chair. What the fuck are those things? Sophia had asked about a row of coarse wooden dolls with dolloppy noses which appeared on the windowsill. A dream carved in wood, he replied. Work in progress, he added, doing that speech mark things with his fingers. Sophia decided the ex had gone mad and determined never to speak to him again. With the ex spending all his time whittling, it came as no surprise to Sophia when his boss had called and said that the ex needn't bother coming into work any longer if he couldn't be bothered, which the ex said he guessed he couldn't. Seeing no chance of any rent coming her way from the now unemployed ex, Sophia took to nicking back from work at odd times and loitering outside her flat, hoping to catch him out so that she could change the locks and banish him from her life forever. But the ex continued to sit and carve. And as he carved, his face hardened, his, his movements stiffened, and he seemed to shrink, possibly from lack of nutrition, for she certainly wasn't feeding him. Sophia's vigilance was to be her undoing, as not many weeks later, she was called into her boss's office to be informed that she had been sacked for poor attendance, poor timekeeping, and generally being crap at her job. With no dog to walk or job to go to, Sophia devoted her day to cleaning the flat, methodically polishing with the finest beeswax polishing polish anything that didn't move, including the little dolls, whose features were becoming finer and whose beautiful hands were now almost lifelike. In this way, the pair passed their time, yet maintaining his moral high ground over the loss of his dog, while carving the furniture, 
Sophia silently cleaning. And so they would have remained, him content in his discontent, her in many ways simply content, until the day that Sophia discovered her last usable chair was missing a leg. Rent! She broke her silence. The ex shaped and shaved as though deaf, putting all his efforts into turning a small piece of chair leg into a woman with a cloth in her hand. Now! Or you're out! Her voice was raised. You lost my dog. He reminded her in a voice dusty through lack of use. He did almost have a point, except for one error in fact. Our dog, she corrected, which was a mistake, as by responding, she had foolishly indicated that she was prepared to discuss the issue. By failing to correctly secure him, he said. Sophia recovered quickly. Out! She pointed to the door. No. The ex sat back, blowing sawdust from the eyes of the little woman cut de delicately in his hand. What could Sophia do in the face of such resistance? Okay then, she said, and with a quick polish to the ex's small knotty foot, she left the flat. When she returned, she brought Harry with her. Harry had assisted the original search for Fido partly as he felt somewhat responsible because the dog had been left outside his shop, but mainly as he had correctly foreseen the resultant drop in dog food sales when the animal could not be found. And he had a fondness for Sophia and a certain sympathy due to her ex's systematic destruction of her furniture. Tell him, Harry, Sophia instructed. Harry took a deep breath. I am to tell you, he started, that this, this young woman here tied the dog up, Fido, up correctly outside my shop. See, said Sophia. The ex failed to see anything, particularly what Harry had to do with the matter. He expressed his feelings by sitting tight. She tells me you will not go, Harry continued, being forced by the ex's intransigence to augment the rehearsed script. That is not being fed to the young woman, who needs to get on with her life. Perhaps she will meet another man, get another dog. She cannot be doing that with you here, not paying the rent and cutting up her furniture. Would you like me to say more? He ended by asking Sophia. Sophia shook her head. I will leave then, Harry concluded. After Harry had gone, the ex's head dipped forwards and a tear fell from the tip of his nose onto the face of the wooden doll. And in the subtle dusk light, seeping past the dolls on the windowsill, he appeared to diminish even further, become almost insignificant, and so very still. Following morning, Sophia awoke to finding the ex's place on the sofa three delicate carvings. A man with his head inclined, his left arm around a woman who was smiling up at him, duster in hand. And in his right hand was a leash leading to a St. Bernard dog.
Chief Susan. Our second story of the night will be The Real McCoy by Cherry Potts, and we read by Lynn Sirosky. Cherry is the author of two collections of short stories, Mosaic of Air and Tales Told Before Cockroach. She runs the award-winning Arachne Press and is editor of three Lies League anthologies, including Saboteur 2014 award-winning Weird Lies. She runs South London Live Lit event for story sessions. Lynn's credits include talking books, TV narrations, and BBC Radio 4 World Service programmes aplenty. She's equally passionate about taking her actor-playwright background to all corners of the business world via her consultancy, Play the Real, helping business people use voice and body to create presence and fun in their working lives. Lynn. The Real McCoy by Cherry Potts. Hello, dearie. Don't be shy. Come all the way in. On your own, are you? I know. It is a bit of a shock, isn't it? Especially after the noise and razzmatazz outside. Not what you were expecting. Well, now, don't be coy. I know what you were expecting. The thing about it is, you lot, what you imagine when you think of people like me, it's... Well, it's all about sex, isn't it? You think mermaid, and you think pale, slender, pretty shoulders, long, floaty hair. And you might even allow for green hair, or green skin, even, a pinch. And you might even have been wondering about a belly button. But you were hoping for a pert bosom. Don't try to pretend you weren't. And the fact of the matter is, we aren't all pretty. Some of us look like the back end of a walrus. Although you'll never find us getting exactly flabby, not with all the swimming. And frankly, if you let yourself go, a shark will finish you off in two shakes of an electric eel. So when I say mermaid, or when you see that tasty little sign outside, for that matter, you are not thinking colossal great things like me with generous hips and flaky scales and big floppy tits. <laughs> so I saw you screwing your face up <laughs> like I wouldn't notice. Are you disappointed? Thinking about asking for your money back? If I was still in the sea, I'd look better. My skin wouldn't be so dry and cracked, and my hair would have a good deal more bounce. And I wouldn't have put on this much more weight. I'll tell you what, though. You weren't really expecting me, a genuine mermaid, were you? You thought I'd be some girly in a clamshell bikini and yardage of slinky blue skirt with unconvincing fins. So why are you disappointed that you've got the real thing? That makes no sense at all. You should be in awe, really. See these? These are gills. Impressive, aren't they? It's only because of a nose and mouth arrangement I can breathe air and talk to you, obviously. If I had to rely on the gills, I'd be dead in half an hour. 
Very few of us survive about the sea. Take us away from it and we pine. Dead in a fortnight, mostly. Fortunately, I'm tough. And I can see the positive side of a career. Of course, I was young once, but never what you'd call pretty or little. None of us are. Your average full-grown mermaid clocks in at 10 feet and close on 300 pounds. That's a lot of ballast. <laughs> Not as much trouble to move as the elephant, but the elephant can walk on her own four feet, of course. I mean, I need my own vehicle, complete with travel tank. It's not very big, it's not very comfortable, but it's generally only a few hours. Do you want to get in the tank with me, sweetie? <laughs> you might not want to, really. I mean, the water's not been changed for a week, not since we pitched the, pitched the tent last Saturday. Too much effort. I should talk to my agent about it. I mean, there's bits of popcorn, dead flies and all sorts. Look! Cigarette ends. You people are disgusting sometimes. The things you think to throw in the sea and a tank, well, that's worse. Do you think I don't notice? What do you mean, mermaids live? What do you think this is? Free Willy? <laughs> I am too old to go back to the sea. I told you some orca, some great white, would snap me up within the hour. My speed swimming days are over. No, love, you'd not be doing me any favours. I'm not what you'd call content, exactly. But I meet some interesting folk here and there, like you, for instance. And we have some great sing-alongs, me and strong man, and the fortune teller when all the punters are gone home. She's the genuine article too, that fortune teller. When we first met in the harbour of some little place I never knew the name of, she told me I would see more of the world than I'd bargained for. And she was right. Not that much of it's been all that attractive. We bring the attractions, the bright lights, the tall stories. No point bringing them somewhere that's got all that already, is there? So it's places like Coventry, <laughs> Croydon, <laughs> Catford, <laughs> and Stoke, and Swindon, and Swow. And here, no offence. Hardly ever go near the sea, of course. Just fluke, they found me. Someone not paying attention and they took a wrong turn. Several, really, and ended up on the harbour wall. Nearly drove the caravan into the water. How I laughed. I didn't want to chat with the fortune teller while they were sorting it all out. Spur of the moment decision, really. And Well, here I am. Ta-da! Right, ho, you scuttle along now, lovely. You've overstayed your five minutes a bit, haven't you? And uh, I can see someone lurking behind the tent flap. Hello, been with you in a tick. I expect you'd be wanting some candy floss and a cup of tea. Oh, and don't tell anyone, sweetie, will you? Don't spoil the surprise. That's a good lad. Hello, Poppet. Come all the way in now. I don't bite. Yeah, I know. It's a bit of a 
of a shot, isn't it? Single Yellow Male by Giles Anderson, and will be read by Greg Page. Giles is a father of daughters. He grew up in a variety of Sussex boarding houses. When not child wrangling or pretending to work at a press agency, he likes to write stories. He's been published in Litro and knows more about Dallas than any man should. Aged six, Greg was cast as Joseph in his infant school nativity. Somebody put a tea towel on his head and he became someone else. He hasn't been himself since. <laughs> he can be contacted by Rosebury Management and has no idea what he's done with his keys. Greg! Yellow Male by Giles Anderson. He'd been out walking in the woods and found a door in a tree. That was where the trouble started. Mr Jolly tried the door. It opened easily. A set of stairs led down. At the bottom of the stairs, behind another small door, he found a round yellow man sitting on a chair. Who knows how long he'd been down there, or how he got there. If the neat pile of gnawed rat carcasses in the corner was anything to go by, he'd been there for quite a while. There were no obvious clues as to why he was sitting down there, but Jolly had found him, and now he felt responsible. Perhaps it was their physical resemblance. They could have been brothers, twins even. Jolly, despite always smiling, felt sorry for the man. He looked so unhappy, and Jolly had never seen anything like that before. Would you like to be happy? said Jolly. It sounded idiotic, but down there, what else could he say? Especially when the stranger said his name was Mr. Sad. He could barely stand, and Jolly couldn't leave him there. What if he'd been abducted and his kidnappers came back? Jolly took him by his hands, which were covered in scars, and gently led him home. In Happy Land, that's what people do. <laughs> but after two months, Mr. Sad showed no sign of leaving. It had been fun at first. Having a housemate was like being a student again and Mr. Jolly took a modest pride in his efforts as a good Samaritan. Once he, once he got sad to turn his mouth up at the corners, the place was constantly full of laughter, and sometimes they'd both sit there for hours giggling about nothing. But although Mr. Jolly was still happy, couldn't be anything else, he was also starting to be Mr. Maybe you should move out and get your own place. It certainly wasn't doing him any favours with little Miss Sunbeam. I think he's creepy, the way he stares at me sometimes, and he looks just like you. It's not normal. 
Jolly just smiled at her. What else could he do? Then Jolly got sick. Sad, well, perhaps Mr. Not Sad anymore, was so helpful he couldn't do enough. Jolly felt guilty as well as ill to think he wanted him out of the house. Don't you worry about your work. I gave your boss a call and said how sick you were, and he said to take as much time as you need, said Mr. No Longer Sad. Jolly just smiled. Jolly didn't know how long he'd been ill for, drifting in and out of consciousness. A week, perhaps longer. The clock on his wall had stopped. He didn't know when. All he did was lie in bed, growing weaker and weaker. He could barely move. His day only punctuated by the arrival of not sad with a bowl of soup and a glass of water, and then later, when it got dark, a mug of warm milk. I really think I should see a doctor, Jolly rasped. Really? There's no need to trouble the dog. Just a bit of bed rest, that's what you need. If you're still ill, by the end of the week, I'll call then. Now, finish your soup. And he smiled, a smile of compassion and concern. And Jolly did what he always did. He smiled right back. Oh, I wanted to tell you, said Notsap, I've got a job. Nothing terribly exciting, but when you're better, I think it's probably time for me to move out. You've been a good friend, the best, but it's time for me to stand on my own two feet. Jolly smiled weakly. Had another week passed? Jolly couldn't tell. He saw no one except not sad. He'd heard nothing from little Miss Sunbeam. Has it been a week? Sir? I, I just think I should see a doctor. If, if anything, I feel weaker. I think you look much better, actually. A few more days and we'll have you up and about. You'll see. Has little Miss Sunbeam called or, or, or popped round? Asked Jolly, his voice hopeful. Uh, no, no. Uh, though I did see her in the supermarket with Mr. Hanson, as they were laughing and holding hands. <laughs> Jolly smiled back automatically at not sad, though his heart really wasn't in it. There was no sympathy in not sad's face, and he knew now there would be no doctor. Now, eat up before your soup gets cold. M might I have a glass of water, please? asked Jolly. Of course, said Notsad, and he left the room, closing the door firmly. Jolly would have to be quick, but where to pour the soup where it wouldn't be noticed? Under the mattress would be best. Notsad couldn't look there without moving Jolly. Just as his bedroom door began to creak open, Jolly noisily clattered the spoon into the empty bowl. Thank you. That was delicious. Notsad looked pleased. But then he always did. They both did. Well, here's your glass of water. You rest up. Back to work for me. But I'll see you later. I, I didn't know you'd started your job. Not sad, just smiled and closed the door behind him. It may only have been a few hours later, but Jolly felt better than he had for a long time and ravenously hungry. He was still weak, though 
He tried to stand. His legs were wobbly, but he could manage it. Hesitantly, he crept down the stairs. Why am I so nervous in my own home, he thought. There was no sign of not sad. The living room was no different. Jolly was surprised at himself for thinking it would be. He went to the kitchen. Nothing out of the ordinary. He was ravenous, though. Maybe just a, a slice of bread, then a bar of chocolate, then more chocolate. His weak stomach protested, unused to the exercise, but Jolly felt better, still feeble, but clear-headed. With solid food in his yellow belly, he thought about what had been going on. Had not Sad been keeping him ill? Jolly felt bad for even thinking it. His friend had been looking after him. But a small voice in his head, made louder by the food, whispered, Don't trust him. Only one way to find out, thought Jolly. He found himself knocking apprehensively on Not Sad's door, the door of his spare bedroom. He told himself not to be silly. Of course he could go in there. It was his house. He opened the door. Everything was very neat and tidy. Nothing to worry about. Probably nothing. Best to have a look round and make certain. Clothes, folded and pressed. All Jolly's hand-me-downs. But weren't some of them newer? Jolly couldn't be sure, but some of those clothes looked like ones that he still wore. Not that suspicious in comparison with the scribbled notes scrunched up under the bed. Was that Jolly's own handwriting? They were all covered in signatures. And then right at the back, underneath the bed, next to the radiator, was another scrap of paper, something that looked like it had been printed off the internet. Rats are particularly difficult to get rid of with poisons due to their very nature as a scavenger. They have become patient in pursuit of food. Often they will eat a tiny amount and wait. Invariably only continue if they do not get sick. For this reason, any effective rat poison needs to have a delay in its effect, in addition to being odourless and tasteless. The principal advantage of anticoagulants over other poisons is that the time it takes for the poison to lead to death ensures that the rodents do not connect their illness with their feeding. Jolly felt sick, but not in the way he'd been feeling up until this morning. He made a run for the spare room's ensuite. Head down, he retched up the bread and chocolate into the bowl, and then looked up. Pasted around the mirror were pictures of Jolly. Jolly with little Miss Sunbeam. Jolly with colleagues. Jolly and his parents. All of them smiling. Except Jolly didn't remember being in any of his photographs. He'd never taken little Miss Sunbeam to the zoo or gone bowling with his co-workers. Those weren't pictures of Jolly at all. Jolly threw up again. Flecks of vomit and bile still around his mouth. Jolly stood and looked at himself in the mirror. His big, yellow face smiled guilelessly back. He opened the door to the medicine cabinet, already suspecting what he would find there. Next to the toothpaste were sachets of rat poison. He closed the cabinet, and there, reflected in the mirror, was another big yellow face in the doorway behind him, smiling.
people was smiling. You're not well. You shouldn't have got out of bed. There was no compassion in the voice. Sinewy yellow hands like pinchers shoved him hard against the mirror. His head hit the glass, shattering it. Jolly saw dozens of distorted reflections of himself and his doppelganger in the broken glass as they fought, and there was red against the yellow. Jolly was weak, but his fear lent him strength. He pushed not sad with all his might, and then, picking up a shard of broken mirror, barely noticing the blood trickling down his fingers, he slashed in a frenzy and then tried to run. Not sad tripped him, but Jolly lashed out with his foot, and not sad lost his grip. Jolly ran for his bedroom, flinging closed the door. He bolted it from the inside. Everything went silent. What to do? Jolly tried to stop the bleeding, but the anticoagulant in his blood was having its effect. Maybe he could run for help, but he lived alone, in a wood, far from anyone else. He pushed the chest of drawers against the door and waited. He didn't have to wait long. A single splintering crack resounded as the axe thudded into the door. Then again, and again, and in place of an axe, a yellow face in the narrow opening. Here's Jolly! <laughs> Followed by a maniacal chuckle. Jolly found himself laughing too, hysterically, and then stabbing with a piece of glass. Your stab! Not stab! Fucking stab! Jolly! Stab! <laughs> Blood poured from the face at the door, and then there was silence. I am, said Mr. Jolly quietly, as he sank to his knees, shaking, his hands covered in blood, the shard of glass clattered to the floor. It was a long time before Jolly moved, even longer before he looked out of the door. There, lying on the landing, was the body of his house guest. Jolly watched it. No sign of movement. It was dark before Jolly left the bedroom. Sad looked dead, but Jolly hit him a few times to be sure. <laughs> now what to do? Call the police? What would he say to them? Would they believe him? Everybody in Happy Land was so cheerful, at least on the surface. But murder was murder. Weak and frightened, Jolly knew what to do. He had no place here anymore. Taking the spare can of petrol from the shed, he doused the downstairs rooms. As he lit the match, he took one last glance at his old life. Had he really been so very happy? Looking back, perhaps not. As the house burned, even the worms in the grass laughed hysterically in the glow of the firelight. Jolly walked away from the bonfire of his old life, not once looking back. Mr. Jolly made his way through the woods until he found the tree. In it, he saw the small door. He squeezed through it and went down the stairs until he came to another small door. He went through the door and sat down on the chair to wait. He could hear the scurry of rats all around him in the darkness. His mouth began to turn down at the corners. Thank <laughs> you.
<laughs> you read by Cliff Chapman. Krishan lives in Norwich and studies creative writing at the UEL. His writing has appeared in Voiceworks, Asiatica, Ambit, and Fractured West. He won the Manchester Fiction Prize in 2011. And in his spare time, he edits a literary magazine, and more of his work can be found online. Cliff Chapman is Leicester-born, Manx-bred, and just about getting into the hang of London. He's proud to be Live League MVP, Most Valuable Player, two years running, and can be wooed with red wine, stalked on Twitter, or offered work via his website. Cliff. The House of My Grandfather by Christian Coupland. My grandfather built his house himself. Every brick, every floorboard touched by his hands. His signature inside stud walls, behind wallpaper, on the underside of the mantelpiece. Times were different back then, I'm told. In those days, everyone built their houses themselves. We go to visit, my fiancé and I. Her name is Charlotte, and I worry that Grandad will not approve. She puts on earrings, and swaps her nose stud for a clear plastic spacer. Smiles. There's nothing I can say to her about me and my grandfather that she doesn't know already. It's a long drive to his house, which stands out in the middle of patchwork countryside, tall and gothic. The fields around are still dusted with snow, the furrows white-capped, few other cars to be seen on the road. We should have brought something, says Charlotte as we pull up on the gravel outside. He wouldn't have liked it, I said. We ring the bell and wait, but it's cold outside and the door is, as ever, unlocked. The entrance hall is dark, the bulb in the ceiling blackened and dead. I walk along, opening the heavy velvet curtains to let in white winter light. We hang our coats on the rack, shuck our boots. A fire is burning in the front room grate. A ledger sits open on the table beside a tray set with glasses and wine. He'll be back soon, I say. But he's not. We go looking, tiptoeing our way from room to room, all high ceilinged, all dressed in walnut and green felt, tall bookcases stacked with folio editions. My grandfather is a rich man with little to spend his fortune on. Our feet, clad only in socks, slide on parquet flooring. The study is empty, and the dining room. The kitchen, an echoing emptiness of terracotta tiles and shining pans. We wander through a library thick with the smell of leather, through storerooms stacked with dusty tins and jars. We crack doors cautiously, giggles brimming in our stomachs like trespassing children. There are rooms here that I've never seen before. Quiet rooms, layered with dust. At the back of the house, we find a second staircase that winds upwards in a tight spiral. We wander through bedrooms, endless bedrooms and bathrooms and offices. All are imperiously neat, echoingly empty. We think about calling his name, but then think again. 
not wanting to hear how little impact our voices might have on the tombstone silence of the house. Another set of steps, another floor, and here we find the accumulated detritus of a life. Paintings and plaster statues and pieces of furniture, rolled carpets stacked in piles, panes of glass and dusty boxes containing ancient board games, tattered suitcases stuffed with clothes, boxes overflowing with tins and bottles and yellowed newspapers, bed frames and mattresses and filing cabinets full of typewritten papers. My grandfather's memories stored up here in cardboard boxes, gnawed away at by rats. At the far end of the attic, the door opens into a narrow, bright room. Pigeons coo in hutches stacked along each wall, preening and brooding in their little piles of straw. They're beautiful, chests like oil spills, horny beaks and glass marble eyes. They smell of lime and musty straw. When he was my age, my grandfather used to breed homing pigeons in the garden shed. Beautiful creatures, he told me. Beautiful. He won trophies for them. I open one of the hutches and a bird struts out, hard, sharp claws grasping my thumb. It takes flight when I try to stroke it, disappearing through an open window and wheeling away over distant fields. We climb again. The next floor is a schoolroom, the desks in immaculate array. The blackboard is clean, and beyond the window, the playground is busy with running boys in short trousers. We sit and wait a while here, but no teacher arrives. We ascend to a smoky post office that looks out at a village green. The ink that sits in pads by each station smells like old books. A giant red iron set of scales stands by the doorway. He owned all this, I tell Charlotte, and her eyes are wide and she does not speak. The next floor is dark and confusing. It smells of gunpowder here and we wander through many bare and stone-walled rooms, rusted bedsteads and broken furniture. Rubble is heaped in the corners, and in the final room we come across a rifle propped against the wall. I reach out for it, but Charlotte grabs my hand. It's not ours, she says. And she's right. I leave it be. As we head for the stairs, we hear the heavy drone of plane engines in the distance. Another floor. There are no rooms here, just one giant hall where a wedding is taking place. The couple have yet to arrive. Everyone sits hushed in the pews, dressed in fine clothes, scents of musk and rich flowery perfume. There are two empty seats in the front row, but we cannot linger. If we stop here, I'm sure we'll end up staying forever. We pass through a train station, through a smoky office with a view of the city. My legs ache from the climbing, and beside me, Charlotte's face is drawn. She looks frightened. We do not let go of one another's hands. I recognise a room filled with beige leather armchairs from some time in my childhood, but I don't remember when. There are no people. We climb up and up through the darkness. The next floor is dark as well, and big. In the distance, I can see a yellow cone of light hanging in space as though cast by a street lamp. We walk towards it, but it hardly seems to get any closer. We rest, 
then walk, then rest, then walk. The cone of light grows slowly until I see that it's a lamp suspended over a desk. My grandfather sits at the desk, writing lines in a ledger. He looks older and frailer than I've ever seen him. Grandad, I say. I'm sorry we're late. I got lost. He finishes his sentence and looks up. There is a small tray balanced on the corner of the desk, on which sits three wine glasses and an unlabeled bottle. He gestures to the seats before the desk, and Charlotte and I sit. This is Charlotte, I say. My voice is so small here, and I'm tired from all the stairs. She's my fiancé. I thought you'd like to meet her. My grandfather looks at her with fading eyes and nods his approval. He pours us all a glass of wine. And there we sit and drink. Thank you, Cliff. Before our final story of the evening, some notices, some of which have already been done. Um, we will be back here at the Phoenix on the 8th of July with sons and daughters. Not our sons and daughters, that's the theme. Uh, the next submission deadline is the 6th of July for August's Beauty and Beast. Uh, details of this, along with all of the year's remaining themes and videos and recordings from previous events, are all on the Liars website. And so, the final story of the evening will be That Which We Leave by Pat Black and be read by Grace Cookie Gow. Pat is a Glasgow-born journalist and author living in Yorkshire. When he's not driving his missus to distraction with all the typing, he enjoys hill walking, fresh air, and the natural world, and can often be found being polite to livestock in the late district. Grace graduated from City Lit in 2013 after innocently signing up for just one radio drama course. Uh, Titania and Hippolyta? Uh, numerous short films, voiceovers and roleplay for UN recruiters have followed. She also holds a BMUS, I'm not even sure how to do BMUS, from Birmingham University, uh, is a classically trained soprano, teacher and core animator. Grace. That Which We Leave by Pat Black. Jose Luis brushed aside the thick palm fronds and indicated the plant. Senor Lucas, he said, eyes glittering. This may cheer you up. You wish to fly home with my friend, without a plane? Lucas sighed, but leaned closer anyway. The jungle seemed to thrum with energy the closer he got to it. Tiny things buzzed and struck out at his face and the high stink of the vegetation fermented into something almost sweet. Lucas's first thought was that he was looking at a burst balloon, 
a thin, shiny purple filament dangling off a slender green stalk attached to a tree with bark resembling pineapple. Leaning closer, he realised that he was looking at a flower, glistening with dew, hiding its stamen beneath long, thick petals. It was the first interesting thing he'd seen on this god-awful, mosquito-ridden trip. It looks like Batman's cape, Lucas said. In the 60s, the purple one. Jose Luis nodded, oblivious to Lucas's irony as ever. A good name. You would like to try? He gripped the petals and almost immodestly raised the flower's skirts. A cloud of tiny flies danced around the delicate stem. Lucas snorted, tripping on a boat in the middle of the jungle. I don't know if that's the best idea, Jose Luis. Maybe we'll just have another beetle sing along. Simone, the press officer, a tall woman from Kent, who misread the brief somewhere and turned up each morning dressed like T.E. Lawrence, pushed her way through the foliage and joined them. Lucas gritted his teeth. P.R. The worst thing about press trips. The junket to the Amazon had seemed such a good idea at the time. Time out of the newsroom at his downmarket tabloid. Expanded horizons. A better class of photo clogging his hard drive. Ever since he'd landed in Iquitos, the whole endeavour had borne down on him like a thundercloud. What have you found then? Simone cried. Oh, what a lovely shade of purple! She snapped a picture, then insisted that Jose Luis and Lucas posed side by side in front of the plant. Lucas made sure he didn't brush against the petals, but crossed his eyes the instant the camera flashed. Don't worry, my friend, Jose Luis said, patting Lucas on the back. The flower is not the part which causes the dreams. What sort of dreams? You will meet the tree god. Everyone does. I'm tempted, Lucas said. Maybe he can do something for my geranium back home. He can do many things. Lucas chuckled. What do they call the plant? Yeah, what's his disco name? God's Fruit. Lucas snickered. Jose Luis didn't. Simone led the tour group through the village like a galumphing girl guide to patronise the locals. Everyone was under 30, it seemed, and most of the mothers no more than 15. Wide-eyed children clung to them as the other gringos threw sweets and kicked footballs into their midst. Muttering darkly about bread and circuses, Lucas wandered over to the football pavilion, a death-defying structure made out of rope, branches, and green wooden benches cracked into foot-long splinters overlooking a threadbare football field with sagging goalposts. I'm going to send some cash for a new set of goals, Lucas told Jose Luis. Imagine pinging one in from 30 yards and it gets disallowed because the crossbar is V-shaped. It's not on. Jose Luis, seemingly oblivious to this comment, said, You are still curious about God's fruit? Very much so, but I don't think it's a good idea to do it on a boat in the middle of nowhere. Too many crocodilias. Later, 
Posilus and the two other tour guides took them down the ancient river on smart little skiffs, pointing out the wildlife hanging from the trees as spray from the water doused the passengers. The day was warm, but overcast, and not as humid as Lucas had been led to believe. With the greenery all around fringing the brownish river, it could have been an English summer's day. And then the special effects kicked in. Turkey vultures swooped in, big enough to bend the trees over wherever they landed. Screaming monkeys with skull faces threaded through the branches. A bright pink river dolphin breached with a raspberry snort, close enough for Lucas to reach out and touch. Sloths dangled from trees with their racy leopard skin hides, prompting sincere questions as to how they managed to breed. In a reedy cove near the shore, they fished for piranha with slivers of meat hooked onto sticks, the lines dancing in the water as the flesh was plucked off. Only Simone actually caught one, a small creature with a bright red belly which fought so hard for life they freed it. Strangest of all was the blue morpho butterfly, a frozen thunderbolt, an electric snowflake, as insouciant as it was spectacular. As darkness fell, the colours of the rainforest bled into the water, billowing over the slick tops of giant lily pads. Lucas, his world weariness sundered, <coughs> snapped dozens of photos, scarcely believing such a tableau could exist before his eyes and not on a cinema screen. The insects and beasts shrieked as the sun slipped away. And where the sunlight left off, the fireflies took over. Green sparks crackled through the air at all points, blending into the perfect star field above. Leaning back in the boat, head against the gunwale, Lucas had the vertiginous feeling that he was actually looking down into the depths of the water, rather than up into the sky. When a shooting star arced across the scene in a pure clear bolt of green, both skiffs whooped like it was bonfire night. No one in Sidcot will believe we saw that, one of the older tourists spluttered. No one! Lucas rolled his eyes. What was wrong with people? Why couldn't they just shut up and appreciate things? Shortly afterwards, Simone was stung in the face by a giant black wasp out of a Harryhausen movie. In very British style, she professed to being fine, even after her bottom lip became the size and shape of a generous sausage roll from Greg's. Once it threatened to inflate to the dimensions of a DSF sofa, the skiffs were turned around and steered back to the pleasure boat, while help was sought. After Simone was sped away to a medical facility near Ikitos, the river boat was berthed for the night, close to the village. The low flickering lights of the shacks were a disturbing counterpoint to the deep black and indigo bruising of the Amazonian night sky. Jose Luis came, came across Lucas as the Englishman sat astern, smoking in the dark. We will be based here for an extra two days, Jose Luis, to allow Simone to be treated. She will be brought back here. The others wish to move on to Iquitos as planned in another boat. If you are still interested, we could head over to see the shaman tonight. 
Lucas tossed his cigarette into the black water. If I don't see the tree god, he said, I want to know why. The shaman wore a headdress and an arsenal strip with mercy stenciled <laughs> on the back. He had the look and build of one of the villagers, small but broad, with good cheekbones offsetting catastrophic teeth. He was happy to pose for pictures and even asked to take a look into Lucas's eyes. Lucas acquiesced without betraying too much unease. Lucas's palms began to sweat while the drink was prepared. A response to the glazed eyes and crazed songs of the shaman and his assistants as the plant was chopped, mixed, tenderised, ground, blended and boiled. It's similar to the way we prepare ayahuasca, Jose Luis told Lucas soothingly. You'll enjoy it, mellow high. You're not doing it? No, I only do it once a year. It is not wise to trouble the tree god more than that. You'd go crazy, man. Now you tell me. The cup was warm when it was passed to Lucas. The brew cloudy like old dishwater. It stung the back of his throat as he sniffed it. Oh well. When in Rome, here goes. Lucas drank it all in one draught. The shaman applauded. Wincing, Lucas upended the cup and placed it on the top of his head. We're in the jungle, baby, he said. Let's boogie! The next morning, or perhaps the one after that, Lucas sat on a tree stump and traced his fingers along a vine, giggling as it twitched and writhed under his fingertips. All plants are ticklish, he mused. Every tone of green seemed so much sharper than before. Above the vine, two pink-toed tarantulas edged up the tree bark, and Lucas wondered, A, if they were real, B, if they were poisonous, and C, if they too liked to be tickled. Then a pair of bright red eyes opened up on the bark. Hello, Lucas, said the tree god. Its voice was not imperious. Lucas had expected it to sound like Charlton Heston or Darth Vader. It was friendly, rich and pleasant, like the mid-morning DJ Lucas didn't like to admit listening to. Hey, Lucas said, I've forgotten I was supposed to meet you. He stood up and peered at a face and yet not a face, an aggregate of vegetation Light and shadow, a gnarled visage framed by leaves. Though the eyes were red, they had the warm tone of a Christmas jumper, not brutal like blood. I'm very pleased to meet you, the tree god said. I rarely meet any white men. You're not missing much. Please, sit down. Very kind. The tree god's face moved effortlessly from tree to tree, following the shape of the bark like projection. Is there anything you would like to ask me? You know, I hadn't thought of anything. <laughs> All the wonders of the universe, and my mind's a blank. You can ask me anything you like. Be selfish. What would you like to know? I want to know how to get what I want. Lucas said. 
I want to succeed. I'm 33 years old and I'm earning the same as I did 10 years ago. Well, that PR gimp, Simone, is probably on 60 grand a year. For what? Speaking bad Spanish and patting poor people on the head? Guys I went to school with are driving bloody Bentleys. One of them as a wife is a tennis champion. The kids are winning spelling bees, for God's sake. Oh, sorry, God. <laughs> no blasphemy intended. I'll overlook it, Tree God said amiably. I want all that. I want the Sunday supplement, restaurant column, the Groucho membership. I want to be the guy I thought I was going to be. It's not as difficult as you might imagine, the tree god said, soberly. From my perspective, anyway. It's not that important, either. It is to me, Lucas said, with feeling. I can give you what you want, such as it is. Much obliged. Hey, I really like your forest. Now... You must give me something. Excuse me? You must sacrifice something to me. Uh, the forest static rose in pitch as the tree god fell silent. Sacrifice? What do you mean? Like blood? A finger? Only you can decide what your sacrifice will be. If you wish to succeed, you must give me something. The two will entwine. I will wait until you decide what to give. The shriek of the jungle became unbearable. Much later, Lucas sipped a cup of tea proffered by José Luis, not without suspicion, and shivered beneath a blanket. His clothes were ragged, and even the villagers were horrified at his pallor. The pleasure boat was birthed. Simone had responded well to antihistamines and the remaining party was ready to continue its journey downriver. You're called out many things, Jose Luis told him. One of the words I heard was sacrifice. Did the tree god ask you to give him something? Lucas smiled. <laughs> You're very chatty about the tree god all of a sudden. A request for sacrifice is a great thing. It means the tree god has bestowed a favour upon you. I will not ask what the favour was, but I will ask, what did you sacrifice? I'll tell you, Lucas said, draining the last of his tea. I was thinking about giving him my little toe on my left foot. The nail went black after I did the marathon and it's never been the same. But then I had a better idea. Simone appeared on the deck, waving frenziedly at Lucas, a sticking plaster pulsating across her lower lip. Lucas waved back, smiling. I gave him my anger, Jose Luis, my bitterness, every bit of poison in my heart. I laid it all down for him and he was very, very pleased. Jose Luis laughed and clapped him on the shoulder. Lucas fixed his silly hat to his head and followed his guide to the jetty in the clear, bright Amazon morning. <laughs>